0: We have the longest lifespans, the highest education rates, the lowest disease rates of, of any generation in history. We live better than kings lived 50 years ago, but the side effect of this era of abundance that I grew up in, I'm a, I think I'm the same generation as you, so I grew up you know, 80s kind of thing. Yep. The side effect of this, Dave, is I can't handle failure or, or even perceived failure. So why did I want to write a book about resilience? Because I don't think I am resilient, and I want to understand research steps on how to build that up in myself and others and my kids.
1: Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance.
2: You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that research is now showing that resilience is ordinary, not extraordinary, in humans. And... What does that mean it means that you may be resilient if you're durable under stress and pressure and you can rebound after adversity and there's something called the handbook of adult resilience and in it researchers say you need flexible and accurate thinking self-efficacy which is believing that you actually can achieve your goals who would have thought goals that are achievable uh, a connection to meaning and other people uh, more positive emotions and a self-care practice now If you're me, flexible and accurate thinking, that's just what I do. Uh, At least I like to think it's accurate. And if it's not, maybe my powers of self-deception are legion. Uh, Self-efficacy, I think I can achieve my goals. Uh, I certainly have achieved some of them, but living to 180 is going to take time and I'm working on it, but I think I can. Connection and meaning to other people, I I do that, I've written about that, I like to think I do that. More positive emotions, electricity will do that for you if you don't have it, no problem. And the self-care practice for me is centered entirely on coffee. And there you go, I must be resilient. (laughs) There might be a biology aspect of that as well, but hey, who's counting? And if you're wondering if I'm going to talk about resilience today, well, you guessed right. Since you already know that I'm going to be talking about resilience with today's guest, you might be saying, who the heck is Dave going to be interviewing? This is a guy who spends all of his time thinking, writing, and speaking about intentional living, Top leadership keynote speaker, one of the top 10 most listened to or downloaded or watched, whatever you want to call it, guys on TED for a TED talk he gave that I wrote about when it first came out. And an author of a of a book that just came out about resilience. I'm talking about Neil Pasarica. Neil, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Dave. It's great to be here.
2: Now, resilience is something that I've I've fetishized. Uh, <laughs> because it, there was a long time when I weighed 300 pounds uh, you know, I had arthritis in my knees and I just knew oh if I do that I'm going to get another sinus infection and I've had hundreds of these things or like I just know if I do it my knee's going to fold sideways and I'll have to get another screw in it and I I felt literally like I didn't have resilience uh, and I'd still I'd push as hard as I could uh, so that said if I look at putting you know the Bulletproof Diet, the 21-day plan to achieve resilience, which I argued with my publisher over. I want to do that because really people who eat the right way are more resilient. Um, my publisher slapped me in the face and said, uh, no, Dave, uh, people don't buy resilience. People, they, they want weight loss and maybe energy. I'm like, all right, fine, because you get those too. Weight loss is a side effect of being this way. But resilience is at the core of the feeling of being bulletproof. <laughs> so you just go out there and like ah eh, i care about resilience that's what i'm going to do you don't like it don't listen um why did you go for resilience versus any of these other cool aspects of resilience
0: cuz i feel like the opposite of you i i feel so low resilient i feel like i get two likes on a picture i got no friends i get a rude email from someone you know what i want to do dave i want to like exercise them for, from my life forever like i i feel like paper thin and I realized this about a year ago when after I gave a speech, a guy ran up to me afterwards, a guy in like a business suit, well-dressed guy in his 50s, with a briefcase. He's like, Neil, what's wrong with my son? And I'm like, I, I'm like, I don't know. Like, what's wrong with your son? He's like, my son was like top of his class in high school. He got like straight A's. He was a valedictorian. He went to Duke University. He, he got a, you know, he was on the football team. He, he, he got a great job. And on his first day of work at this fancy company, he got a rude email from his boss, and he quit. <laughs> he called me from his bedroom that night crying, saying he couldn't handle the pressure. So he's out, he's out of the job. Like, he's quit the job. And, and when I heard that story, I thought, that's me. Like, I really did think that you wrote about my TED Talk 10 years ago, Dave, and that TED Talk is about me going through a divorce, me going through losing a friend, and I was not resilient. I lost a ton of weight. I was super stressed. I, I had crazy high anxiety. I I could not process something that traumatized. Me. And I believe the reason people like me suffer from low resilience is because we kind of grew up with it all. Do you know what I'm saying? We grew up in a time, a day and age like today, where I can press a button, I can get a car to pick me up, I can get... A phone entertainment on the way home. I got food waiting for me. When I get to my porch, we have the longest lifespans, the highest education rates, the lowest disease rates of, like, of any generation in history. We live better than kings lived 50 years ago. But the side effect of this era of abundance that I grew up in, I'm a, I think I'm the same generation as you. So I grew up in you know, 80s kind of thing. Yeah. It's not 80s, 90s, gold stars, participation rates. The side effect of this Dave, is I can't handle failure. <laughs> Or, or even perceived failure. So why did I want to write a book about resilience? Because I don't think I am resilient, and I want to understand research steps on how to build that up in I, myself I was and, just, and my kids. I
2: was just noticing that like, the way you answer questions is inadequate and not very good right now. And and
0: so. <laughs> <laughs> how do you press uh, quit on these thoughts? <laughs> no, I, don't play with me. I'm very fragile.
2: <laughs> no, I'm kind of having a hard time believing that because part of the thing that maybe you talk about this, but I mean, you worked at Walmart for ten years, and I don't mean as a greeter, but like you were in executive, you know, you're a director of leadership development, and you're really looking at how humans humans interact in large organizations. I've had the fortune of being out to Bentonville, uh, meeting some of the very senior Walmart team. Uh, and that's a pretty tough culture. I mean, they're like, literally, you can't give them a cup of coffee in a meeting because they'll they will put a quarter on the table because otherwise it's taking something from a vendor. Like, it's very strong standards. And years ago, I used to sell to Walmart when I was in the the, the creation of the hosting industry that became cloud. If you wanted, like, they would come and, and their senior executives would sleep two to a bedroom at Motel 6. I, I'm not even kidding. Like, Like, the culture was so, like, it was kind of
0: tough. And you in hung Sam wall in Sam Wall's days, it was nine to a bedroom.
2: <laughs> but you you hung there for ten years, and you say you're not resilient. Eh, huh? <laughs> How much marketing are we dealing with here, my friend?
0: <laughs> uh, that's so funny that you say that. I didn't feel like being at Walmart was tra- challenging my resilience. I, my perception of Walmart from the inside, and let's be clear, I was Director of Leadership Development. That was my last role there. I also worked other HR jobs. I was lucky enough to work a development role for the project as a project manager, the CEO of Walmart Canada. My perception of the culture from the inside was it was a very, very warm, kind-hearted yeah. culture of very high-integrity people. The quarter on the table example is a great metaphor because Sam Walton you know, the history of that, I don't know if you know this, he was fishing with a guy. So Sam Walton, founder Mm -hmm. of Walmart was fishing with a guy who like he bought like tackle from, you know, and, and the guy like, you know, bought him a couple things and he went home and he thought, I feel a little uncomfortable. And the next Monday when the guy came into the, the vendor room to like sell him some more tackle, Sam felt, I don't really like this stuff, but I feel like I got to buy it because on the weekend when we were going fishing, he kind of Bought me a coffee or two. And so he made, he made, he decreed a law inside Walmart saying no one can ever accept a penny for anyone ever again. Yeah. So that you were then free to say yes or no to the product offered to you in the vendor room. I
2: I was actually blown away at at the cults. They were very, very clearly, you know, cost aware. Uh, but the people were legitimate people. I, I was, uh, I was, you don't know what to expect because, you know, there's this external image. But I, I was actually really, really blown away by going to Benville. Changed everything I, you know, every stereotype I would have ever had about Walmart. Uh, so I, I hear you there. But so seriously, you hung for 10 years in senior leadership at any company which is full of politics. Not saying Walmart, is just any large company when you hit thousands, not, yeah. not less, hundreds of thousands. There's conniving, there's Machiavellian, there's 48 laws of power yeah. going on. So, how did you yeah. hang for that long? If you're such a snowflake.
0: Well, so listen, I, I, um, I told you how I feel on the inside. Okay. Right, like that you're is a good a true. Actor. That is a true that that is a true thing okay. of how I feel on the inside. But the other thing, Dave, that I haven't told you yet, but you will you will know this and you will understand this is, extra externally from Neil Pasricha, the metrics are fucking, gigantically <laughs> skyrocketing <laughs> on anxiety, depression, loneliness, suicide. Dr. Gene Twenge at San Diego University says that anxiety rates are up 30% over the past five years. And previously, they were like oscillating at kind of like the 1% up and down rate. You know, you look into the details, she blames the ascendance of the smartphone. Loneliness rates have doubled since the 1980s. Depression rates are up. One in four of us now suffer from a mental illness, according to the National Institute of Mental Health. S- Surgeon General Vivek Murthy says loneliness is the next big epidemic. What I'm saying is, yes, I'm using Neil Pasricha's special snowflake story as a way in to the door of this book, but I believe I'm just one example of a, a general malaise that a lot of us are feeling, and I believe the root of it is that we don't know how to handle failure. We don't know how to handle perceive failure. We aren't as strong. There's a reason the subtitle of this book is How to Navigate Change, Wrestle with Failure, and Live an Intentional Life. Is because I want the book to tackle these larger issues that I think a lot of us are feeling on the inside, but we can't put words around them. And I know I'm feeling them, too.
2: Now, you, the book you're talking about, by the way, you've written a bunch of them, um, is your latest one, You Are Awesome. Uh, and so even that title, like, Gold Star Central, like what? what, What's going on with that? By the way, it's it's a good book, and I haven't even mentioned your podcast called Three Books, uh, where you you talk, you you ask well known people the three most impactful books in their life, and and have a talk about which is which is cool. So like you're you're all in, and you actually do walk your talk. But okay, you are awesome. Uh, You're saying okay, you sucked at failing, uh, and you really were kind of floating around, not doing what you wanted to do putting on a face, but this, this hits it for me. I, I was doing this till, you know, my, my early thirties, uh, because, uh, you know, that's just what you do. It doesn't matter if you're suffering, you put one foot in front of the other and, and you do it. Um, what, what threw the switch for you though? I mean, was it the, was it the divorce you know, hitting rock bottom? I mean, I went through a rough breakup around that time as well. It, it was that your trigger or was there something else?
0: Yeah. So, you know, my parents, so I'm, you can't see me if you're listening to this on the podcast my skin is brown my parents are are brown my my dad is from Amritsar India he's Indian my mom is from Nairobi Kenya they have a very conservative indian culture that I, I grew up under which is the way you measure success as you become an adult is great work leads to big success leads to being happy like study really hard then you'll get good grades and if you're indian you become a doctor you know <laughs> or you work really hard you get a promoted and then you're happy but as I grew up, I kind of followed that model. I went to a good school. I got a nice degree. I met a nice woman. We got married. We bought a house. And at age 28, I'm 40 now. At age 28, that all came crumbling down. She told me she didn't love me anymore. My best friend took his own life. This is the impetus behind the TED Talk I eventually yep. gave you. you know, afterwards. I then channel all that crazy heartbreak into, like, frankly, just a devastating Piece of my life where I lose forty pounds of distress. Of course, everybody at work is like, "You look great, man. What's your secret?" You know,
2: <laughs> that's the overload all <laughs> I'm Like,
0: no food, no sleep. You know, that's the secret. I, I, I am traumatized by this huge life change. I don't know how to handle it, how to process it. I've got to sell my house. I start getting therapy, and at that time in my life, if I. Go to Google, and I type in how to start a blog. I click I'm feeling lucky, and I start a blog called 1000AwesomeThings.com. Why did I do that? Because I thought 1,000 was a small number. It sounds tiny. Everything's billions and millions in the newspaper. 1,000. Why did I call it Awesome Things? My mother-in-law at the time, so the mother of the woman that I was married to pre-divorced, she said about everything, well, that's awesome. Well, that's awesome. I had, I had this voice in my head. <laughs> I was hearing on the right. So I, I like how you was change your voice. That yeah, that's awesome. Well, that's awesome. If you go to Urban Dictionary, by the way, the, the definition of the word "awesome" is what Americans call everything. <laughs> you know. So I was like, okay. Now you ask me why this book's called Your Awesome. Well, it's because a thousandawesomethings.com turned into the Book of Awesome, the Book of Even More Awesome, the Book of Hauled. When you you know this, when people know you by a word, <laughs> and you deviate from that word, so I my last book was The Happiness Equation. People are like, who's that? Who wrote that book? Who is that guy? They don't know that it's me. So this time the publisher was like, whatever the title is, you got to have that word in there because people know you buy that word. And the way I came up with the title, You Are Awesome, is I believe, and I do believe this, the world right now is telling everybody that they're not awesome. I believe that the message that you get today from social media, from your cell phone, is that you stink. I believe that so- social media is, no matter how good your dinner is today, Dave, somebody's at a lobster buffet in the Maldives right now. So relatively, your life feels worse than them. You can't be the best at anything anymore. I want this title. That's why I picked a bright orange cover with a sunburst. And I want to remind people that they have awesome inside them. And then once you open the book, hopefully that's the point of the coverage. You get the people open. Then you go through the pathway that I went through, the journey. And I share lessons, balls, and research.
2: Have you ever seen the the monkey video with the grapes and the cucumber? No. Okay. <laughs> You're going to Google for this. Everyone's going to Google for this afterwards. What do you type
0: in? Monkey, grape, cucumber?
2: Uh, it'll probably it'll probably come up. And it's about jealousy. So there's two monkeys. They can see each other. They're in cages. And they're both trained. You put a rock in a little basket and you get a reward. So the first monkey puts this rock in a basket and he gets a piece of cucumber. He's all happy. He eats it. The next monkey puts a rock in a basket, gets a grape. Okay. And then... The first monkey looks at him and keeps eating his cucumber. Then the researcher comes back. And <laughs> I love this. The he, the monkey puts the rock in a basket and he gets a cucumber again. And he looks at the cucumber with this look of monkey outrage. He throws the cucumber at the researcher and just goes crazy, like jumping around the cage, like, ah, I didn't get a grape. I didn't get my grape. And you can just see it. And you're like, oh, my God, that's humanity right there uh, doing what we do. And that's the emotion that we're having when we didn't have the lobster dinner and the Maldives. Well, I mean, I did, mm-hmm. but you didn't. Okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and even if you did, you would check online and some would, like there's again, like even Oprah's looking at how many followers Justin Bieber has. You know what I'm saying? Like you can't win. Psychologically, you're at a loss. And now in addition to that, that, that's one problem with cell phones, the psychological side. There's also the physical side. You know, you look at bright screens an hour before bedtime, you know this, your brain doesn't produce as much melatonin, oh, yeah. so you don't have deep sleep. You don't. So you wake up with lower resilience the next day. So what do you do? Instinctively check your cell phone. These days, Dave, when I ask an audience of people, how many of you sleep within 10 foot, 10 feet of your cell phone? Guess what percentage of the audience raises their hand?
2: Uh, it's probably 95 percent.
0: It's actually 95 percent. You actually like I literally it's actually, <laughs> it's actually you nailed it. I've like, developed mind reading
2: skills, but you haven't yet, closer. have you?
0: That was very I didn't know you were gonna know. Um, <laughs>
2: Actually just I made that up. <laughs> but it just seemed, even, seemed like about what it should be. But if you
0: if you drank a bottle of wine before bed every night, if you slept within ten feet of of a bottle of wine and you drank a bottle of wine when you woke up in the morning, we'd all label you someone that's an alcoholic. You yeah. would know that that's what you are. But we with the cell phones today, we all have this, so we can't see the addiction. We just can't see it. And it is a big reason why our resilience is low. I do I very much believe that. So part of what I'm advocating And You Are Awesome is this concept of untouchable days. It's a huge, huge part of my book. I advocate the idea of fully untethering yourself from the matrix of everything for one full day per week. Of course, my Jewish friends make fun of me. They're like, well, you know that's called the Sabbath, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm like, no, I didn't know that. For me, it's called an untouchable day. I schedule them in my calendar 16 weeks in advance. I have a rule. They can't They can't be deleted, but if something more important comes up, they can move between the weekends. And on those days, Dave, I leave my cell phone at home. I actually ask my wife to hide them, and I have no internet access on my laptop. And on a typical day, I write 500 words. On an untouchable day, I can write 10 times that I'm out. They're where my podcast and my book kind of come from. And I believe there are an ingredient that we're all going to need more of as we think about developing our mental strength. How do we Fully unplugged from this gigantic tethered internet that we're all sort of living inside of.
2: It, it's interesting you say that. Um, part of my uh, part of my story, I had. Uh, so I'm I'm 47, but I had my own computer when I was eight years old. There is no one my age who had that because my computer was pre-DOS. They didn't even have DOS yet. It was something called CPM. My dad worked it's like 19,
0: 1980
2: kind of uh, thing. yeah. That would have been nineteen eighty actually, exactly when I had it. Uh, and so I'm a mind reader <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you picked that up for me, uh, and so and I was also one of the very early early internet guys, the first guy to sell anything over the internet. So I had like a serious email addiction problem when I was eighteen. Like email would go down once a week, and I would get super tweaked. And I look back on it now, very clearly an addict. Like, I'm going to die. I don't have email. What, What's up? And I'm addicted to Usenet. And I went through this whole cycle where I got myself unaddicted. But it was the same trip where I discovered yak butter tea that had been around for 2,000 years. Clearly, I discovered it. But when I first tried it. Uh, and on that trip, I brought a three-pound laptop. This is in 2004. Three-pound laptops were like $8,000. And I'm going to download my email. And I'd go to the internet cafe and I'd I'd steal their ethernet. And I'd try to download my email and I had so much spam that I couldn't download spam faster than it arrived because of the slow Chinese internet back then. And so I ended up going three months off the grid. And that was when I had yak butter tea and thought of bulletproof coffee. That was when I had uh, pig's ears, which made me start making collagen as an ingredient that's now a big deal. I'd use that to fix my knees. And I had all this just crazy things happened to me because I was unplugged and there was no cell phone signal there and I just simply couldn't do email. Uh, and I, I think it matters, but I don't actually practice that at all right now uh, other than putting my phone in airplane mode every night. Is that good enough?
0: Mm, well, first <laughs> of all, where do you keep your phone?
2: Well, I have, I have a, very, uh, a very clear relationship with my phone. It doesn't come out of airplane mode until I drop my kids off at school. So, I keep my phone next to my bed because it's monitoring my sleep and it has a gentle wake up alarm that wakes me at the top of a sleep cycle. Uh, But it serves no function other than as an alarm clock. Like, there's nothing to check. It is turned off. It's in airplane mode. The screen is extra dim and on red mode and all that. So, I keep it next to the bed, but I don't have any sort of information connection to it other than when am I going to wake up?
0: And what about on weekends?
2: Um, on weekends, I've tracked my sleep every night, so I,
0: no, no, not the sleep, but do you, are you using your phone throughout the days? Um, yeah,
2: absolutely. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, so there's no, there's no, like, I'm not, I'm not going to prescribe you kind of a, a, a phone kind of like process, but what I do just to share some examples that work for me are, and I I think I'm I'm a little bit more addicted than you, so like I can't do it. If I had my phone beside my bed, I would literally be check- I couldn't stop checking, and I, I wouldn't have that willpower. I wouldn't be using that willpower. I would fall to the level of my systems. And in this case, it would be like, what's the latest text or email? So what I do is I hand Leslie, my wife, I am remarried to kind of close off that loop of that story that I started from 10 years ago. I hand her my phone on Friday nights, Dave, and I say, do not give this to me till Monday morning and hide it. So even throughout the weekend – now, I know my laptop does have access to most of my stuff. So I could flip open the laptop. I don't save my password, so I'd have to log in to Twitter or whatever if I wanted to. And then I could I create some friction that way. Otherwise, I intuitively look at it without meaning to. The device is so seductive. What it's doing, though, is it's pulling my eye contact away from my children. Yeah, It's pulling it's pulling my attention away from my family. It's pulling my uh, – uh, People ask me, okay, Neil, what if you if you don't have devices at dinner, what do you guys do? And hilariously, that question is coming up, which is, tells you something about our society today. And I say, well, you know what we do every night at dinner? Dave, I'll tell you. We have a game we play. It's called Rose, Rose, Thorn, Butt. You go around the dinner table. Everybody has to say a rose from their day, a highlight, a gratitude. And it has to be specific. I got an assistant hockey practice. My boss gave me a compliment at the meeting, whatever. Then another rose. Then a thorn. Because It's important to get something off your chest. A thorn is something that did not go well. Yep. The room is supposed to respond simply with, mmm, that's the response. Mmm, you know, oh, that sucks. That's it. That's all you're supposed to do. Okay. Then a bud, B U D, a bud. Why oh, they you said bud? Looking... My
2: kids would be all over that. Okay.
0: Yeah, bud, B U D, like a bud on a tree. Like B U D, bud. Because like it's cannabis. something you're looking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all close with our favorite strain of week. No, it's it's something you're looking forward to. So whether that's tonight, tomorrow, next weekend, or I want to be living at a villa in Tuscany when I'm 180 with Dave Asprey, it's something you're looking forward to. And that simple gratitude game, Rose Rose Thornbutt, I will t- tell you, fills our dinners with an intentional activity with no phones, and it re- increases our connection to our family. We. Some of this is in your, this is your Ballywick. Some of this is a neurochemical game, right? I'm trying to get off dopamine. I want to get back to oxytocin here. I want to get back to touch, kissing, hugs, intimacy, love. Those are the chemicals I want my brain.
2: It's a a powerful practice. I don't do that at dinner, but we have a a rule you know, don't, don't, don't use your phone during dinner. Um, So, you know, I'll put it on the charging station or whatever. Um and I I guess I have a harder time on uh, on weekends and all because I, I read on my phone.
1: Mm, <laughs> you know, I actually mm, read stuff like I a, I want to read.
2: Actually. And I, I think, well, what would mm. I have been doing or what would my dad have been doing on a Saturday morning? You know, reading the newspaper <laughs> isn't yeah. and by the way, reading news, I don't consume video news ever. Uh, and I, I use news filters to filter out all the crappy whatever someone did something bad somewhere, like I don't care. Um, but there's actually Stuff to learn and stuff that's interesting in PubMed, and that's valuable time. So people will tell themselves a story, and, and I do this with you know, my wife mm-hmm. and kids. Like, hey, uh, I'm actually reading something. I'm not checking Instagram mm-hmm. or Facebook. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm you know, doing something that I choose to do with my phone. And because I'm sitting at the table and I'm waiting five minutes, and no one is here, we're not chatting right now. Like that's that's a, a normal use of tech, uh, which would have been killing a tree a generation ago. And it's it, yeah. it's that line where. I don't know exactly where it ends, uh, but it, it seems like how do you how does someone know if you're ethically using your device versus you're out of control using your
0: device? Well, first of all, you're speaking from a place of deep intentionality. Your your mode of living is is frankly. Pretty well, I,
2: don't know if, I don't know if my wife would
0: agree.
2: My wife's like, could you put down your well, phone? Well, and I'm like, actually, here's, no. Here's,
0: I'm reading. Well, one <laughs> of the most surprising studies I came across when it comes to this book on resilience, and this is partly why my podcast is called Three Books. It's about books. It's about reading. Why? Because one of the most surprising studies is actually from 2011, Annual Review of Psychology, that shows that reading fiction, fiction, fiction. This is hard for people like you and me to hear. I love fiction. This. Yeah. Okay. Especially literary fiction. Opens up the mirror neurons in the brain, specifically the parts of your brain responsible for compassion, empathy, understanding. And it's best epitomized, in my view, by a quote from Game of Thrones uh-huh. where George R.R. R. Martin writes, a reader lives a thousand lives before he dies. The man who never lives lives only one. You asked a minute ago what it was like working as director of leadership at a big company. I'll tell you what. The number one derailer for executives who want to go to the next level, like, say, VP to SVP or something, SVP to C-suite, is EQ, right? Mm -hmm. You always get turfed. If you're going to get turfed to that letter for something, like, you're not a nice guy in meetings. You know People don't like working with you, that kind of stuff. So the number one way to build EQ is actually reading fiction. You inhabit another conscience, You're another gender, in another culture, in another time period. You're a Japanese girl in the 1400s. Do you know what I'm saying? And so they've now done MRIs. I think it was Emory University or Rice University where they can look at your brain the next day. You're not even reading at the time. And the language center parts of your brain are more open. People say, why? Why, Neil? Why? I say, tell you why. Because when you watch Netflix, guess who's the director? Vince Vaughn or whoever, like they pick the the, the actors, what mm-hmm. their voices are like, what the what the what the what the background looks like, what the costumes look like, what the music. When you're reading, you have to you are the director. Yeah. You have to use so much more of your brain to even read to be somewhere else. You know, um, when I interview people for three books, somebody said, "Oh, I, I picked this I picked this book about the this sort of uh this uh, Russian death camp because I found myself shivering when I was reading it." Like, it literally puts your brain as if you're there. One way you can build resilience, I think this all started, by the way, when they put the camera on the front of the iPhone. Like, we are so self-centered now. Yeah. Like, we think we are the center of everything. Our Instagram profile is just a picture of us and a bunch of different faces, you know? So, like, one way to get out of our heads, to get out of ourselves, to build up resilience is to inhabit other consciousness consciousness, I can't say that right. And the best way to do that is to read more fiction. So in terms of the before bed screen stuff, what I would say, what I do say and what I do advocate myself and you might disagree Dave, is read fiction from a good book, from a real book because we have 11 hours of screen time already. And I I'm an advocate for things like independent bookstores and w- the wandering and discovery process that cannot be replicated from I believe any algorithm other than the human mind and how someone curates a store and/or an assortment or a bookshelf, which is why I think people like you I mean you go over to someone's bookshelf. Yeah. and you go to their house, you know.
2: Yeah, paper books are awesome. I, I have a, a love hate relationship with them. I mean, I you mentioned the the light before bed thing. It's not just from screens; it's from a reading lamp. So I started at a company, TrueDark, that makes glasses that that I, I use if I'm reading that, but I still prefer to be in a really dark room with with glasses on and a screen that's barely lit, um, or It's funny, you you mentioned that study. I posted that study when it came out uh, on social, but another study came out afterwards uh, that showed that listening to a book uh, activated Mm. exactly the same parts of the brain as reading it. Uh, So what you can do is, if you're going to go to the bedroom and you want to be circadian compliant, you can actually put in earphones and turn on an audio book. Then again, your device has to be there, but it can be in airplane mode. And the screen can be turned off and that becomes really interesting uh, where you mm. uh, uh, where you end up with uh, um, a story and you have to draw the pictures in your head and that act yeah. is going to do the same thing. So whether you're reading or listening, if it's a story, that's cool. And one of my bucket list items is actually I'm going to write a really good fiction book one of these days, but I've got a few more nonfiction books in me before I do that. But that's that's a very different skill set.
0: Yeah, it is. And I love this. I didn't know that study. That's great to hear. And now I'm going to get, I can, I can, I can use it. I interviewed a psychotherapist for three books the other day and she told me one of her three most formidable books was was Charlotte's Web. And she listened to an audio recording of E.B. White, the author, reading it to, to, you know, because to re-listen to it as an adult. And what she said, and maybe there's a study on this somewhere, is it made me feel like a kid again getting read to. And that kicked in part of my mind of the feeling of there's, you know, Matt under the covers or on the carpet at your elementary school or like being read to is a joy that we give to children and we don't give to ourselves as much as adults. So it's a beautiful way to kind of kick back in that. I don't know if you want to call it nostalgia or whatever, but like there's some just pure love that happens. when You get read to, you know,
2: uh, there really is. And it's, uh, it's really weird my my kids still you know, my, they can both read they both read voraciously but they still you know they they want mom to read to them uh, but somehow they don't want me to read to them as much i don't know maybe i read too fast
0: <laughs> you got a good reading voice though
2: oh thanks man all right so so one of your things uh from the from your uh you are awesome book is unplug and actually read a book uh and i i couldn't agree with you more it's funny new year's you know turn of the decade I met this party with a bunch of authors and entrepreneurs and, and we're doing this uh, like big mastermind uh, run by JJ Virgin, who's been on the show a couple of times. And you know, one of the things we did is we went around and said, name a book that's been most impactful. And so there's 25 people and everyone is you know, a business book and a marketing book or a personal development book. And, at the, and I named one of those too. And then at the very end, I'm like, actually, I forgot, like, like this one fiction book. And I'll save that for when I come on your show to talk about a fiction book. I said, because, and I cited the same study you cited, like because if you don't read fiction, your brain's not going to work. Uh, and then I was like, oh yeah, that's right. And we had this whole big, long discussion about our favorite fiction books that wasn't on our agenda because it's so important. So I'm, I'm happy you bring that up. And that, that's an amazing way for people to reconnect and um, just do something. And I, only in the last two years, have become really intentional about taking time to do that. Um. So that's one thing, but you've got nine other things uh, in
0: your house. Yes, I do. Awesome. I tell, tell me something else. Sure. Uh, remember I said you got to get rid of the cell phone in, in the bedroom?
2: What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well That's neurohacker.com slash dave15, quality at NAD+. It's what I use. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, More resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Um, so that's one thing, but you've got nine other things uh, in yes, I do. your house. Awesome. Tell, tell me something else.
0: Sure. Uh, remember I said you got to get rid of the cell phone in, in the bedroom, and you said, well, Neil, that's that's for you. For me, it's a really dim airplane-moded alarm clock. Fine. <laughs> but for other, people, for other people listening that are like, okay, I'm with you... On that I'll plug it in the basement to create some more kind of geographical friction between me and my thing by the way buy the by the self you know buy the alarm clock if you need to I say you need to start your day with a two minute two minute morning practice that builds your mental resilience before you start the day too many of us Dave unlike you are getting jostled mentally when we wake up whether that's a buzzing alarm clock a screaming baby a trump tweet someone is controlling our mind right when we wake up I say the average person is awake for 1,000 minutes a day. My argument is can you take two of them to build mental strength? If you say, yes, Neil, I can do that, I say, here's what you do. You grab a pen, grab a, I keep a stack of cue cards or a, a copy of a journal called Two Minute Morning mm-hmm. beside my bed, and I open it up. There's three prompts. Every day I fill it out. Okay. I, I shouldn't say every day. Almost every day I fill it out. It is I will let go of, I am grateful for, and I will focus on the first one is probably the most important. Okay. It is called I will let go of. It is based on the study from Science Magazine by Brassen, B-R-A-S-S-E-N and colleagues that showed if we can minimize regrets as we age, we actually live a more content and happy life. But here's the thing. I researched this for You Are Awesome. It turns out that religion knows this. Oh, they yeah. believe confession is good for, for the soul. Yeah,
2: forgiveness is the, a core part of almost everything. Yeah.
0: Confesh- uh, confession chamber, Catholic confession chamber. Bless me, Father, for I've sinned to put Big Tony in a vice under the deli. Yep. You know what I'm saying? And, and it's not just Catholicism, it's also Mormonism, Mormonism Buddhism, yeah. Islam, Judaism. There's confession. But get you know what? According to National Geographic, what the fastest growing religion is in the world? No idea. No religion. I was going to say, no I,
2: I don't know that any of them are growing that rapidly.
0: So no religion is the fastest growing religion. I thought you were going to name
2: a multi level marketing company, and that would be. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So, um, like countries like France and the UK and Australia, like, are about to tip over into a secular majority, meaning that many of us, including me, we don't have a confession chamber in our life, right? I believe this is partly why sites like postsecret.com have exploded. You know, people mail Frank Warren a million postcard confessions, turn into six New York Times bestselling books, postsecret.com. Why? Because we need a place to confess. I will let go of, based on the research, actually crystallizes and ejects an anxiety. I will let go of the fact that three books is not as big as Dave Asprey's podcast. I will let go of the five pounds I gained over the holidays. I will let go of the fact that I, I went to bed too late last night and I knew I would screw up my day. And I did like, I will let go of that. It lets it disappear from the front of your brain and kind of, out the back. Okay. You don't think about it all day if you can write it down and you can remove it. The second thing I am grateful for, we don't need to belabor this because you and you know we you've probably hammered this home a million times. Emma's and McCullough shows that if you can write down 10 things you're grateful for at the end of every week, not only are you happier after 10 weeks, you're also physically healthier. Most important thing though, Dave, most people forget this. It's got to be specific. You can't write my husband, my kid, and my dog. You can't write that down. You gotta write when Marco put the toilet seat down. When my when my baby Tyler gave me a drawing he did at school, when Trooper learned how to shake a paw, like specificity is the key here, Uh because otherwise you aren't carving that neuropathway to the right spot. And the last one I will focus on. Look, when you talk to people, why you stressed, why you're feeling so anxious, a lot of them say, I got too much to do, too busy, my to-do list is too high. The point is we are all suffering from decision fatigue and the phrase i will focus on forces you to take 30 seconds or a minute in the morning and say hmm what's my one big thing today what's my one thing carving a will do list from your endless could do should do again this is i will let go of i will i am grateful for and i will focus on a 2 minute morning practice to make the other 998 minutes stronger and more resilient
2: okay i love that uh, what's another one uh, from you? Are awesome. I, I mean, we're only going to talk about three of them, which is apparently a magic okay. number, given that you're three books podcast. But you've got nine sure. in the book, so we've hit yeah. uh, we've hit the disconnect one, and uh, then we just hit this one. What's what's another one sure. that's really impactful?
0: Well, here's one thing I, I talk about a lot in the book: is the idea of telling yourself a different story. It Turns out that there's a, a study called the end of history illusion. Um, I don't know if you've—I'm you've, you, sure you have heard of Daniel Gilbert. He's the guy that wrote *Stumbling on Happiness*. He's a Harvard psychologist. Uh, he wrote that—you know—something that, you know, something that is like the book with the the apple, the the, the bowl of cherries kind of tipped yeah. over on the cover. And um, he went through a really rough year, like a few years ago, like uh, like a loss of loss of a marriage and and a loss of s- some friends. And um, unlike people like me, like, who just are like, man, what a bum year. I got to start a blog about, about, about fat baseball players and, and wearing warm underwear. <laughs> this guy did a 19,000-person research study. And his research study went as follows. He said, when I went through my horrible year, I presumed a year later I would be in the throes of pain still. But turns out I was okay. So uh, he did a study, 19,000 people, Dave, and they asked all of them two questions. First question, so Tell me about the last 10 years of your life. Everybody painted a tempestuous portrait of their infinite ups and downs. I was married to Mark. We got divorced. I married Joe. I went in this job. I thought I was going to be there forever, but I got turfed, and then it changed, blah, 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 and we moved three times. Oh, the researcher said, what about the next te- next 10 years? Well, guess what, Dave? Everyone's like, well, I'll still be married to Joe, and certainly I'll still be a VP at, at Tasco Inc., and, well, I'm sure we'll definitely still be in Cincinnati. Like, the idea is, in this study... We all universally fail. And this is done with people from age 20 to age 70. We all universally fail. We we know the past was totally up and down, but we've to think the future will be changing. The researchers called this study, it's literally labeled, great phrase, the end of history illusion. And you mentioned Walmart and my time there, and you, you painted my sexiest job, which is director of leadership development. What you don't know is that the job I started with was not sexy. I started there helping people fire people.
2: Oh, meaning, HR. Yikes.
0: So, like, someone, like, say, you know, person A is firing person B. My job was to coach person A the day before help them with the paperwork, sit in the room, and then in the room, my, my obligation and responsibility transferred immediately to person B. I'm empathetic, I'm supporting, I'm helping them understand, I'm walking them to their car, I'm, and, and I'm at their trunk with them as they're packing up their office. It was a very, very, very hard job, and I lost a lot of sleep over it. Why do I tell you that? Because every single person in the, the, the parking lot said, Neil, what am I going to do now? This is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. My life is over. I'll never find anything again. And guess what? They've, as you know, Canada's kind of small. Retail's even smaller. Yeah. And Toronto's like, uh, right? So I bump, bump into these people again. And guess what all of them tell me year two later when I, you see them? Best thing that's ever happened to me. Yeah. I never would have been able to go visit my family in Peru. I wouldn't have had time with my daughter after her miscarriage. I wouldn't have started this company that I've always dreamed about, but I always talked myself out of it. I'm at a smaller company now. My point is the end of history illusion applies. To all of us, when you go through that divorce, when you go through that loss, when you go through, when you get dumped from your job, you believe everything's over. I'll be in my parents' basement forever circling want ads on monster.com. That's our common human perception. What the research tells us is that actually it's false. Mm-hmm. That is a lie you are telling yourself. A way to get out of that is I use a few questions. I call them three questions in the book. You say, you ask yourself three questions. Number one, will this matter on my deathbed? You know how many people get upset about fender benders? You know, like that's not, you'll never remember that on your deathbed. Totally true. next question is, can I do do something about it? Can I do something about (laughs) it? You know, if if you can, go ahead and do it. (laughs) And if you can't, you can't. Like, it's 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 the serenity prayer, you know? Like God grant me the, the, the wisdom to know the difference in what I can change and what I can't. And the third question is, is this a story I am telling myself? I got to tell you, Dave, most of what I hear people say when they tell me that they're stressed or they're anxious or they're feeling low resilience is a story, not a fact. They say, I failed my parents. I say, why? They say, because I failed biology. I said, no, you failed biology. <laughs> you don't fail, you fail your parents. Oh, they say, oh, nobody trusts me. I say, why? They say, oh, I'm always... Uh, uh, I drink too much. No one trusts me. Yeah. I say, oh, you maybe you drink too much. That's a step, but it's not – no. see what I mean? Mm-hmm. We layer – we lacquer onto our own core identities this idea that we are much more flawed and much more troubled than we actually are. If we husk away the stories at the root of it, you got a biology problem. You don't have a parental problem. you got an alcohol problem. You don't got a trust – like yeah. work. On the core objective truth, those three questions help jostle my mind. They're a way to build resilience, and I lack. I, you know, I kind of threw in that study end of history illusion because it's what opens up our, you know, kind of especially for your audience and you kind of you're soul research focus. This is kind of the proof point, right? That that we all have this tendency to otherwise think the life is over.
2: It it's really true. I've I've been working a lot on my kids with that right now. It, it's you know, my my brother hit me, my sister hit me, whatever, uh, and they did it because and I'm like, hold on a second here. Now, <laughs> the first part of the sentence may be true, although you might have left out the fact that you hit them first, right? <laughs> but like that's measurable. But the reason they did it—did you ask them the reason, and did they tell you the truth? Because otherwise, everything after that—it's like blah 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 blah. You're not telling anything other than a story, and it's a story that isn't true, even though it feels true. And. Uh, that's a really big thing cuz you know if someone cut me off in traffic it's cuz they think they're better than me and like eh, whatever I, I i've learned because i used to have a really serious like i had bulging muscles on my middle finger for a reason uh, when i would drive uh, <laughs> cuz i used it a lot uh, this is it took me a second years, to get <laughs> it <was> years ago <laughs> I, i'm pretty pretty mellow now but uh, i would i i realized you know the story was that you know they disrespected me they they think you know i'm not a partner whatever uh, and now the story is like oh they're on the way to the hospital to see their yeah, their dying mom exactly. or whatever I, it's all bs I, I don't know why they did it that really they probably did it cuz they're just big assholes right but i have to tell myself that story so i'm just going to make up a story that makes me happy because it's less expensive for me to make up that story than to make up an angry story
0: mm. right i love that word expensive too cuz you're talking about all the internal biology that happens yeah. inside when you know it's a Seneca quote uh, jealousy and anger damage the vessel <laughs> more 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 than than the, the target right it's the it's the and there's a great commencement speech by David Foster Wallace called this is water where he really articulates that idea that the idea that somebody racing past you on the highway it may be rushing their wife to the hospital
1: yeah. and
0: it could is it true not necessarily but could it be yeah. let your mind sit there and actually, actually place some more love and empathy and by the way you said the ki- thing about your kids and i love that story but part of what i'm talking about is the self talk right so what happened after my divorce well I'm ugly. I'm unmarriable. I'm unworthy of love. I, nobody will ever date me. I'm troubled. I'm marked. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a failure. I'm a divorced guy. See, these are some stories I layered on there. Grade nine gym class, Dave. <laughs> uh, my, I don't know if this is chapter four of my book. My my grade nine gym teacher makes a wisecrack, which I I, I could get in. A base. Turns out I so I had one ball. I'll just tell quickly. One ball. I didn't know nobody. I didn't know anyone else had two. I just didn't know. Because it was before the internet. Like, I didn't know. Like, it was just like, we have one one nose. We got one mouth. We got one Adam's apple. We, I was like, we got a one-digit streak kind of going down the body here.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And and then my gym teacher in grade 9 gym is like, oh, yeah, I remember once in a Eastern European bodybuilding tournament, I crushed a guy's testicle. And, everyone, and the whole class is like, oh. And he's like, yeah, yeah. We all called him half a man after that. <laughs> And everyone bursts out laughing. And I was like, oh my gosh, other people have too? I'm disfigured. I'm unlovable. I might have a high-pitched voice. I might never have children. Uh, The very first thing I yahooed when the internet came out was testicular implants. Wow. Okay? And guess what I found? A whole world of them. You can surgically implant like fake balls. I
2: thought about getting eight of them implanted just to be (laughs) kind of (laughs) awesome. (laughs)
0: <laughs> it's big balls, not a number of. That guy's got a lot of balls.
2: Ray, but redundant um, array of inexpensive that balls. That, so that, that's, balls. That's my strategy. <laughs>
0: But the point of the story was that I was. This is yeah, what happened. it affected to us. you. This is this is what we do. Yeah, we tell ourselves a story that we are unworthy of love. It's lowering our resilience. It lowers stress. So I share that story in the book, not to gross people out. And I I was I wasn't sure if I should put it in, but I was like I put it in. And you know how many people I get? You know how many emails I get now from people saying like, "Guess what? That's me too."
1: Mm-hmm.
0: One of my best friends I've grown up with since I was ten years old called me up after you or Austin came out. He's like, Neil. I won't say his name and stuff, but he's like, he's like, Neil, I have one ball. Like, I can't believe you wrote that. I, it's like one of my best friends, Dave. Wow. You know what I'm saying? That's crazy. Like the amount that we can connect if we share, you know this, you do this.
2: Uh, it, it's, it, it's true. And there's a lot of humanizing elements where people don't share what's going on. And, you know, Lewis Howes, you know, wrote his, his mask of masculinity book. Uh, and he's uh he's a friend. Uh, and, Ah, uh, been on the show, been on his show, et cetera, et cetera. But he was like, "Okay, I'm this, you know, you know, pro football, you know, tall, tough dude." But talking about vulnerability and all that, and a lot of this is people won't say what's actually going on in their head because it's too shameful and all that. And mm-hmm. at a certain point, you just realize I'm done with that. Uh, so part of that you are awesome thing is realizing that the things you actually think are shameful. Everyone else is thinking them too. They just aren't saying it. <laughs> and at that point, yeah. eh, all, all the stuff that was stressing you out is maybe less stressful than you thought it was going to be.
0: Yeah, it serves to further connect you in an area of loneliness. It fur furthers to build your confidence in an area of where vulnerability and trust is so important, but we have much so much less of it because we can't believe what we see as much. And it, it, you know, and and look, ten years ago, I did that TED talk that you wrote about ten years ago. That was the first time I publicly talked about my divorce. I was even too embarrassed to talk about the thing. But it brought it. It created an avenue and a pathway for which I could connect with people, and that has turned into everything for me. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be I wouldn't be on your podcast ten years later talking about my seventh book if it wasn't for that TED talk that I was super super nervous to give. You have to share if you want to connect.
2: It, it's funny um, people who haven't like like there's there's paths of, of phases of life. So mid twenties, late twenties. You start realizing some of your friends are pairing off. They're starting to get married, and you end up saying, I'm going to do all these fun things. And you spend every other weekend going to a friend's wedding, starting around like 27 through 33. And then you get a little bit of reprieve, and then some of your kids, some of your friends might start having kids. Uh, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, got all these, you know, uh, parties for, uh, you know, whatever you call the baby parties, uh, baby showers. And then it's like, oh, no, all the divorce parties start happening, except they're not parties. And if you're at the early curve of your friend group doing that, like to call up your friends and go, oh my God, I failed. Like I failed at my relationship. Like I, I failed at being a man or being a, a woman or being a husband or being a wife or uh, whatever it is and whatever your, your thing is. And I mean, it is it is seriously scary and traumatic and all that stuff. And then, uh, you have all these stories about, oh yeah, I won't be able to go out with my friends anymore because I don't have a partner and all this weird stuff. And none of it's true. And then when half your friends end up getting divorced anyway, they all go through the same thing. <laughs> it's so funny because it's predictable what's going to happen. Mm. And the people who are wise just read a book about it or get a therapist and it, it just say, look, or just talk to a friend who's been divorced and they will like, oh yeah, I'll do that. And it, it's one of the reasons I've advocated uh, for a long time. In fact, my New Year's resolution I shared with people was, look, find a friend who's 25 years older than you or 25
0: years younger than you. Oh, that's great. Right? It's, it, I, already, I already like it. Keep it's going. like
2: something you're going to do anyway uh, in, in that like it's a, it's getting friends you're probably going to do. And you might actually achieve this New Year's resolution because you don't have to do something every day and, and it's not something you either lose or fail at. Uh, but the difference in quality of life, if you can call someone who's 25 years older than you and say... I'm going through this weird stuff, and they're like, "Oh yeah, I did that three times, and I finally learned." And, and then they share all that wisdom for free, and they're happy to do it. And if if you're the old guy, you're like man, I just saved that that person a huge amount of work, uh, and like I, you feel good about it, and everybody wins. And I some of my my closest friends are in their 70s, uh, and I learned so much from them, and you know we we love hanging out. Uh, and you know, I, I get to work with people who are 20 years younger than me and the ones who, you know, will sit down and you know, be truthful with me and honest and I'll tell them the truth. And it's, I don't know, it, it's really satisfying and it keeps you young and, and it makes you wise if you're younger. But to your point there about how you felt about your divorce, everyone who's ever been divorced felt like you felt you just, uh, you know, <laughs> you were one who had the courage to talk about it, which makes it less well, shameful.
0: And- and I love, I love that. That's your new year's resolution. I have believed for a very long time that we have a huge gap in our society on intergenerational kind of wisdom transfer. I have intergenerational friendships as one of my awesome things in the book of awesome. I have intergenerational dancing in the book of awesome. I believe, and I and, and in the happiness equation, my last book, I have a whole chapter called Never Retire. And and this is my whole philosophy on the idea that retirement's a fake and outdated concept that be lies, kind of what we naturally want to do. There's this, I think, called activity theory. Retirement was invented in the late 1800s by this German chancellor called Otto von Bismarck when unemployment in Germany was over 25%. He's like, oh, I'll pay you some money if you're 65. Why? Because 67 was how long people lived. Like, this whole thing is bunk. And you know who I get the most emails from, Dave? And this is kind of playing directly to your befriending 70-year-olds thing. Uh, Older people who email me and saying, I feel as though... The amount of wisdom I have attained in life is totally disrespected, not counted, discounted, worth nothing in my organization or my company yeah. or my community. And they just, they just give me the bump like I got – like this old man can't learn new tricks. And it breaks my heart to get notes like that. And people are like, what do I do? How do I start again? And I'm, I'm like, we're doing it wrong if we think that the people older than us – have less than us. That's a mistake. Uh,
2: Yeah, the wisdom of the tribal elder is something we've done for thousands of years for good reason. And part of the reason that I'm really interested in anti-aging, and the first chapter in Superhuman, I talk about this deficiency of older people today who um, have the energy, willpower, uh, and ability to go out and give back at the way they want to. And then how we have a problem with people who are younger saying, I'm too busy or I don't care. I, I find huge amounts of, of value from forming those friendships. and I, I think had I had that when I went through a, a bad breakup you know, earlier in life, uh, it would have probably saved me a lot of pain mm-hmm. <laughs> versus doing what uh, what you did at Walmart, what I did for the, the first you know 10 plus years of my career is you know you, you fake it. It doesn't matter if you feel like crap and you know, you're, you're utterly you know anxious and sad and irritated. you show up to the meeting and you nod your head. You know, take notes and do what you're supposed to do, and then you know, just kind of don't let people see
0: what's going on,
2: and that's pretty yeah. dysfunctional. I, I get you there. And
0: do you, do you know what they call uh, retirement in Okinawa, Japan? Which, by the way, as I'm sure you probably know, has the highest percentage of or centari- like a people over 100, than anywhere in the world.
2: Uh, I have no idea.
0: They don't have a word for it. Wow. They have no word they have no there's no Okinawan word for retirement. Instead they have a word called Ikigai, I K I G A I, Ikigai, which roughly translates as the reason you get out of bed in the morning. I
2: thought that was my favorite kind of sushi as
0: a... <laughs> <laughs> or the person you wake up beside for a lot of people. That, but it's it, it, it comes <laughs> it comes from Dan Butner blue yeah. zone study, you know, National Geographic, and, and basically what they say is it, so what what I gave Leslie this for for Christmas as a present a couple of years ago it's like a little card I just it's like you could just take a cue card and fold it in half and it just says my icky guy is that's it and she wrote down building empathy because she's an elementary school teacher and I wrote down helping people live happy lives for the work I do and we leave it on our bedside table and when you wake wake up before you do your two minute mornings you open your eyes you know your icky guy you know your purpose mm-hmm. you know your bigger reason.
2: That's really powerful. i I love that, and it's it's a big part of it. And it's why I wanted to have you on the show um, because uh, just being intentional about this, you've you've learned from it. You've wanted to go out there and and there's something valuable about studying leadership and culture at large companies. Um, one of my earlier guests on the show, uh, Stu Friedman, is one of my professors uh, from Wharton, who was in the top hundred executive leaders at Ford and was one of the in fact, he was the first person who got me uh, in business school. Uh, to really think about, hey, uh, you know, what's the ROI on these activities you do? So, if you want to you know, have something going on with your community and with you know your health or with your friends or these different domains of life that that affect your happiness, what if you could do one thing that that checked off both boxes, like go for a workout with a friend? So you get your health and your friend boxes mm-hmm. ticked, and just teaching people earlier on in their careers, like you know, here's how to be conscious of that. Um, but you're sort of pushing the same the same thought process there. And it, it, it his came from talking to leaders at a large company over the course of time about what caused them to be happy or not be happy. And you had a similar experience and you ended up with a very interesting list of, of experience. So I, I think you've had a, almost an academic level of, of, of ability to just see so many cases that you can see patterns that a normal person uh, wouldn't see because you wouldn't have visibility to get behind the brains of these executives, saying, "How do I become better?" Uh, it's a it's a cool perspective to have, and it comes through in your book.
0: Thanks, Dave. I think organizations are doing a lot a lot of things right, and I think they're doing a lot of things wrong. And I'll tell you two words that I'd like to introduce back into corporations right now, if I could. Number one is the word demotion. I think that word is so soured. When you give people the option of demoting themselves, this is also related to that tribal elder thing. Hey, Tony, you don't really cut it anymore as a VP. You want to be a director again or get a package, Tony will always take the package because Tony wants to save face. Mm -hmm. Nobody in an organization wants to take the lower job. Meanwhile, you fire the coach of the Dallas Cowboys. What are they talking about? Offensive coordinator for the Giants. Like In some industries, it's okay to go down a a level or you go to the bullpen if you're a starting pitcher or whatever, right? But somehow in organizations we don't accept that. We think you got to get out, you got to leave, you got to save face. If you get demoted, it's a bad thing. What I'd like to say is, no, it's a good thing. It retains knowledge in an organization. It puts you in a place where you can spread knowledge, and, and you don't lose the tribal knowledge from the organization. That's a big problem right now. Is we think demotions are a bad thing. Other thing that I would like to, the other word I want to reintroduce to organizations is lunch hour. Lunch hour. Somehow lunch hour disappeared in companies. Now no one takes it. And if they do, it's all together with everyone's on their cell phone. This is not lunch hour. This is, this is forced mingling. I'm talking <laughs> like drive away from work with no cell phone and take a nap in the park. I'm talking like lunch hour. The idea that your brain needs a total piece of solitude in order to recharge and re-energize for your afternoon. Or however you define it for your body and your mind but this warrior mentality is so stale and it's just horrible.
2: (laughs) I I love your mindset. Uh, Neil, thank you for coming on Bulletproof Radio. Um, You've got a very interesting way of looking at things and you're really just raw and real about it. Uh, And it comes through too in your podcast. Your podcast is three books. Uh, Your new book is You Are Awesome, The Ultimate Gold Star Name. Okay, that's not your subtitle, but people will remember that. Uh, (laughs) And something we didn't get to talk about uh, your website is threebooks.co for uh, uh, for your your podcast. You actually release your podcast according to the lunar calendar. So anytime the moon is full or the moon is either waxing or waning at its fullest, uh, you release a podcast, which is uh, super unusual and uh, very old school and uh, just noteworthy. So I I like that about it. It's got a cool vibe I don't
0: trust the Gregorian calendar. Nobody knows how many days February has. And daylight savings time saves no daylight. Lunar calendar is 30,000 years old, not 500 years old like the Gregorian calendar. It's been here before us. It'll be here after us. It can trust it. It's grounded. It's real. It's long term. Like books, like you, Dave, and like the work we're trying to do.
2: Thanks, man. If you liked today's episode, you know what to do, go out there and read You are Awesome. And if you didn't like today's episode, you know what to do too, go out there and read something else. (laughs) And if you like it or you don't like it, leave a review. That's how you say thanks. Have an awesome
1: day. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey.